Why has the commander of HMS Queen Elizabeth been removed from his ship? Is Turkey hungry for war with Cyprus? And the essence of being a soldier, the warrant officer's speech that's a must-watch for MOD recruiters. And above all, the one thing I really cared for was my section, a section that I could still name today and one that I will never forget. In case you hadn't heard, the captain of HMS Queen Elizabeth, the Royal Navy's new aircraft carrier, has been removed from the ship during his last trip in command. Commodore Nick Cook-Priest was stripped of his command over an allegation that he drove the ship's Ford Galaxy in his spare time like it was his own. Commodore Cook-Priest was flown off the ship by helicopter last night. In a statement, a Royal Navy spokesman said it had been decided to remove him in light of the ongoing investigation as a precautionary measure to protect the individual and the ship's company. Well, let's talk to former First Sea Lord Admiral Lord West. Lord West, good to speak to you today. Uh, this seems heavy-handed, doesn't it? He, he paid for petrol, logged the time in and out of the car. What do you think? Um, well, good afternoon. I think the first thing I would say is I, I do not know the full facts of the case, and I know from bitter experience uh, in the Navy that you know, you need to know all of the ins and outs of, uh, of of an affair like this before one can really make a clear case for whether something is heavy-handed or, or not. Um, there's no doubt that some administrative rules are really for, for the guidance of wise men and the obedience of fools. There's no doubt about that. Um, but I don't know the full details. So it's not at all clear exactly what he's done. Can you just explain what the car is actually for? Well, as, as I understand it, this specific car was a car allocated to the to the ship to be used by the ship, certainly by the captain whenever the captain needed it. Probably with a driver, he probably had a uh, I don't know Royal Marine or maybe a uh, one of his stewards or something as his driver, um, and it would also do ship uh, journeys as well. Um, and again, this comes into a confused area. Historically, quite often companies have given ships a car. Um, and, and air squadrons, the Phantom Squadron that we had, 892, at, at uh, Yeovilton, they were given a Rolls-Royce by Rolls-Royce because they had Rolls-Royce Spey engines in it. Mm. And, you know, these cars were given, and then the usage got quite complicated. You know, what are the rules for their usage? How are they ha how is this done? It, it, it gets quite difficult, and one has to be sensible in, in applying the yeah, rules to it, it. Yeah, and when you mentioned earlier about the rules, about the guidance of wise men and the obedience of fools, what do you mean exactly? What kind of examples are there? Well, I was just... I, for example, if it, it probably says very specifically in the in the books of uh, the BRs, the, you know, the, the books of regulation, um, that a car is not to be used for I don't know, going to Tesco's to pick up some shopping for the captain or something. I don't say that. Um, but actually, if the car isn't being used for something else, if the captain's tight on time on board, if he's had to leave his car at home, you know, then possibly one would say, well, that's OK. Mm, just do, you see what, do you see what I mean? There's yeah. got to be a, a certain amount of sense. But that's why I'm wary of talking about this without knowing all the facts. So you know, just generally speaking, though, just how squeaky clean and perfectly behaved do officers of this rank have to be? Well, in theory, you, I mean, not in theory, I mean, actually, you've got to be so, so careful, not just nowadays, but always, you've got to be really, really careful. Um, and, you know, if you're sailing close to the wind, you really need to know, 
you need to know the rules very clearly and you need to be exactly sure what you're doing. Um, because there can't be one rule for an able seaman on board the ship and one rule for the captain in terms of things like this. Mm. Um, you know, that it, it, it has to be equivalent across the board. And what I'm surprised at is how this got so much um, uh, publicity in a way because there have been cases before in the Navy where things have happened and they don't get pushed out and promulgated until later. And it, it just makes me feel that somebody must have pushed this out on board, you know, uh, uh, were people annoyed about something? It, it's 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 that's that sort of worrying aspect lurking in the back of my mind. Mm. Julian Lewis, the chair of the Commons Defence Committee, suggested in the Commons this week that there should be some leniency over this matter, given how hard and how much money has been put into training somebody like this. Um, that it is actually quite a great loss to the Royal Navy at the time when it needs people like this man in that role. Well, it, I mean, it certainly is a loss, and certainly I've met him a couple of times, and I knew his father, and uh, I, I don't believe for a second he's dishonest, and he's a good officer. Um, but um, as again, it, one needs to know all the facts. That's that is the problem, and and you know we we are very strict about some of these things. And if if he had been given warnings about not doing it, if you know, I, I just don't know what the lead up to all of this was. That's the problem. I'm very surprised that he was flown up there, put on the ship to bring it south, and then taken off again. That you know, this this that's not good. It smacks of a bit of confusion. Yes, it does. And seem, I don't like that. It does seem that perhaps in that. Sp- Specifically, the, the Royal Navy could have handled things a bit better in that situation, at least. Well, that did seem confused. I mean, I don't think that's good. And the poor man, that's not good for him either, having been whizzed up there you know, and the prospect of bringing it down into Portsmouth, which would have been a wonderful you know, last thing for him to do, even if that was the last thing he did in the ship, and then being plucked out again with great publicity. Um, uh, yes, I don't, I don't think that's been cleverly done, and uh, I don't know what pressures there are. I mean, the first Sea Lord, who I'm sure made the final decision, having talked probably to his legal people and ministers and things, um, you know, he's an extremely good first sea lord. He's coming to the last few weeks of his time. Um, I'm, I'm sure he wouldn't do something like this lightly. So uh, that's why I would like to know the full facts. Mm, well, listening to that, we have a security analyst, Professor Michael Clark, and our own defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Uh, Michael Clark, um, what do you make of this story and what Lord West is saying? Well, I mean, as Lord West says, we we don't know the facts, so and there are clearly there's something else in this. And my own guess, and it is a pure guess, is that it may be something to do with uh, previous verbal warnings, which maybe were seemed to be ignored. Maybe it looked as if uh, that the captain was uh, pushing against the regulations or something like that. And and I take exactly what Lord Allen says that I mean, Phil Jones, the present first seal, is a very good man and he's very level-headed and he must have agreed with this. He must have signed this off, as it were. So there's got to be a good reason there somewhere. But this is not good for the Navy in general. It, it's one of these things that after all the good that can be done by the carrier, and by the the interest that the new carrier evokes, particularly in the United States, you know this is this just detracts from it for apparently trivial reasons. Christopher, first thing is that is that we've got to make it clear that the Commodore hasn't been charged with anything. He's not accused of being dishonest or anything like that. This is something which seems wacky to start with, but there must be more to it, as both people have suggested. It comes to that ship, and you discover a personal and a professional standing. The personal standing is is quite important. You know, how does it get in with everybody? Has a good ship's company? Do they like him, etc.? But professionally, he's got nothing to prove. He joined that ship in October, didn't he? After an important and distinguished 
career, uh, part of his career in command, and so nobody has any doubts. So it shouldn't be something which, my goodness, he's not good enough to have that ship, and therefore we've got to find an excuse to get get him off that ship or or whatever. And so one begins to think that perhaps there is something else, um, and also a confusion as part of the navy. Navy, um, it, it smells that some senior officer has come across this thing because it's gone public, otherwise it would have been uh, quiet. Some senior officers said, look, no, we can't do that. Somebody said, get him off. Other, somebody said, no, let him stay where he is because he's still officially in command. And then somebody says, I don't care, let, let's get him off. I think it looks a bit of a holics by the Navy, the way they've handled it. Um, and we get no closer to the story, but I suspect we will by the Sunday papers when people from the ship start sort of leaking what they know. Lord West, um, just before we go, um how do you think the Royal Navy should handle this matter going forward now? Well, I think there's got to be a, there's got to be a proper uh, investigation, and I gather that investigation is ongoing. And then those facts should be clearly you know, should be clearly put out. I think we need. I'm afraid on when you get to this stage, you need transparency. I, I don't always believe in transparency, actually, in some cases because you never know what's happened. But when, when you get to this stage, and so much is in the public arena already, it needs transparency to show that actions taken have been appropriate and, and have been fair. So we've got to have a, a proper investigation. There's got to be an outcome to that. And then that's got to be declared, and we've got to move forward from there. Lord West, um, sorry. Go I was on. going to say, the timing is very unfortunate for the poor Commodore. It's you know, very unfortunate. And also for the aircraft carrier, because Donald Trump is due to be on well, her soon. Well, yes, but the Navy has got a number of very good captains and very good people. We, you know, we can do this. You know, we, we've built a structure whereby people can get killed and wiped out uh, and kill, keep fighting. And so we've always got people who can do that. And uh, and I'm sure that won't make a difference to that visit. And uh, Donald Trump, because he's been well briefed by his people, knows how important our aircraft carriers are to global security and to the Americans. They're so keen on having them that they're putting US Marine Corps uh, F-35s onto them to give us a boost to get going even quicker. So, you know, he'll be keen to go on board and see it. And I'm sure whatever happens, it will come across as the splendid ship it is. Lord West, thank you for your time today. Still to come, who's keeping the peace? The challenges faced by those wearing the UN's blue beret. And straight from the soldier's mouth, the warrant officer's speech that's got us talking. Britain has rejected a UN resolution demanding that it should cede the Chagos Islands in the Indian Ocean to Mauritius. It was passed overwhelmingly at the General Assembly in New York, with only Britain and five other countries opposing it. The islands are home to a huge military base on Diego Garcia, which is operated by British and American forces. Well, Britain's permanent representative to the UN is Dame Karen Pearce. The joint UK-US defence facility on the British Indian Ocean Territory helps keep people in in Britain and around the world safe from terrorism, organised crime and piracy. Well, Professor Michael Clark and Christopher Lee are still with us. Professor Clark, not much support from Britain's allies, allies here. 116 states were in favour, mm. only six against. 56 states, including France and Germany, abstained. A major diplomatic blow to the UK, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's in the General Assembly, which doesn't matter as much, of course, as the Security Council. Um, and those who supported us, apart from the United States, were, were Hungary, Israel, Australia and the Maldives. And a lot of our allies abstained. So that's that's it's humiliating. 
Um, and it also comes on top of the International Court of Justice's ruling in February this year, which said that the British Indian Ocean Territory should be given back to Mauritius. So Britain is coming under a lot of moral pressure on this. And it really comes down to exactly as Karen Pierce expressed it, actually, in her speech. It comes down to whether you're talking about sovereignty or decolonization. If you're talking about sovereignty, then there's no question that Britain owns uh, the, the Chagos Islands. It owns British Indian Ocean Territory. It bought them entirely legally from the Mauritius government in 1965 in a perfectly good legal deal, which is still in operation. But if you're talking about decolonization, which is what the United Nations likes to talk about, then the, the, the whole Chagos Island chain, the 60 odd islands of the Chagos Islands, are regarded as a British colony. And what they're saying is, well, the age, the age of colonies is past, so you should start, you should give them back. And really, the, the, both sides are talking past each other. The majority of the UN wants to talk about decolonization. Britain, America and a few other states want to talk about sovereignty. Mm, Christopher Lee, remind us what is on Diego Garcia in terms of military hardware and personnel. B-52s. Pretty simple. I mean, there's a lot of other gear as well. Uh, go back to this when this started. Cold War. And so uh, America needed a, an Indian Ocean facility, Northern Indian Ocean facility. And so uh, the United Kingdom said, we've got the Chagos, you can put uh, a couple of squadrons there. And it is now the main and has been for years, the main uh, heavy bomber uh, command in, in, in the region. And if there's an attack by B-52s, which we sometimes talk about, and it goes up into the Middle East, that's chances are that's where they're coming from. Nothing has changed from that. It was an obligation. You imagine, you imagine the foreign secretary uh, uh, having to go to America and say, well, I'm very sorry about this, but it's all about decolonization. And they look at you and say, you what? <laughs> you know, we have got very, very, and they, it, it's a facility that they would ha actually say we need. We would agree we need because our policy in the Middle East is roughly the same as uh, 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 the Americans. It just ain't going to happen. And as Michael pointed out, this didn't go through the Security Council. It went through the General Assembly. And that's like going through Tunbridge District Council. I mean, nobody takes any notice of it. Mm, th so this resolution, Michael Clark, demanding that Britain should cede the Chagos Islands, as Christopher puts it, I mean, is anything actually going to come of it? No, not necessarily. It just adds a certain amount of moral pressure. Um, and of course, as long as the United States and Britain have a, the united view on this, which they certainly do, then it certainly won't go through the Security Council. It, it's not it, it's not good for Britain because we've been losing ground in several other areas of the United Nations in the last 10 years. I mean, British diplomacy is on the back foot around the world. But as Christopher said, this matters so much to Britain-America relations. And remember, it isn't just about the Middle East. It's also the rise of China and the role of China in the Indian Ocean, the string of pearls bases, which so upsets India and a lot of other countries too, make the uh, the base of Diego Garcia and all the intelligence that runs from that base even more important. So the base is going to become increasingly significant, not not less so. And so I think we're, we're, we are in for perhaps an uncomfortable time in world opinion, but where this is where we've just got to balance off our strategic military uh, security interests against what the rest of the world keeps saying. Now, Turkey is running its biggest ever naval exercise. 130 ships are taking part in Operation Seawolf, which continues until Saturday. However, the day before the exercise began, Turkey's president announced that the country would be sending a drill ship to extract natural gas from an area widely considered to belong to Cyprus. 
Uh, Christopher, um, seems to be twofold tension here: the drilling plus the fact this this huge exercise is taking part off the coast of taking part off the coast of Cyprus. What is Turkey trying to do exactly? Okay, well, I mean, there are apparently deposits off the coast of Cyprus, and Cyprus actually has a claim on it and has made that claim as part of uh, Cypriot economic zones. Now, that drilling will take place. 39, 30, 40 miles just off the coast of Cyprus. Uh, it takes place uh, considerably more, sort of twice as far uh, more off the coast of uh, of uh, Turkey. And there's the dispute. Uh, people, people like the British, who've got a responsibility for Cyprus and others in NATO, say, listen, uh, that is not your economic territory to sort of to to, to drill. Uh, they're sending the faith, which is a, which is not some old drilling ship. It's a, it is a rather sort of special ship, sending the the, the faith and its support vessels, uh, with a whole bunch of uh, part, partly sort of military vessels as well as a frigate going and as a couple of other small vessels going, and they're determined that they're going to drill when they want to, and that's the Turks. They're going to drill when they want to, and they don't take any notice of what the what what the Greeks and 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 uh, Greek Cypriots. Uh, claim as, as, as theirs. It is the sort of tension you don't want, in, in uh, apart from over Cyprus, because I mean, you have to go back to 1974 when the Turks invaded northern Cyprus, and there is the basis for the, for the intensity. Also, the fact, of course, that, ta- that, that Turkey is an important member of NATO, mm. and there she is having a go at um, just as important member of NATO, because we know what's happening from uh, NATO at the moment, uh, from uh, Turkey, Turkey at the moment. Michael Clark, uh, given there is this dispute over who can claim the energy resources in this area, how can it be resolved? Can, can Turkey be stopped? Not easily. I mean, the, the whole of the Eastern Mediterranean is what I call spring-loaded for crisis. Um, you know, you can see the spring-loading on several issues, the, the resource issue, the military issue, the political relationship, as Christopher was saying, between Turkey and NATO. And we don't know if a mouse will run across the spring-loading. And if it does, it will always be over a bank holiday weekend, because it always is. Hmm. Um, but you can see that it's spring-loaded for crisis. And Turkey at the moment is rowing with the the members of the European Union and its NATO partners and the United States in a pretty regular way. It's uh, engaged in uh, military manoeuvres now with Azerbaijan at the moment, Pakistan, Georgia. It's apparently having people trained in Russia or claims it is for the S-400 um, defence system, which would be a real deal breaker with NATO if Turkey really did acquire that system. And so there's a sense that, that, that the Turkey is pushing all the boundaries and then certainly not going to be deterred from drilling in waters that don't legally belong to them if they feel that they want to. That's, a, that's become a minor issue, relatively minor issue, in all of the bigger um, operations that they're involved in at the moment. Mm, Christopher Lee, how do you see this developing? Well, it's, it's, it's developing even now, and that is that the, um, the EU um, policy uh, commissioner, uh, Federica Mogherini, has said, uh, Turkey, you've got to show restraint. And they've said, you've got to respect, and this is the EU recognition, the sovereign rights of Cyprus. Or else what? Uh, or else we will have to take uh, further action. Now, what further action is in the EU at the yes. moment? No, well, he's got an absolute clue. It's a <laughs> or bit else like we'll talk to you again. <laughs> you know what they're going to do? Yes. <laughs> they'll, they'll send it to United Nations, and that will cop the lot, won't it? No, I think there is a problem here, and that is that that, that people cannot 
expect restraint from Turkey that showed in the region it does what it wants, either politically on, uh, or militarily. And the only way you can actually get is give something in return. And at the moment, uh, nobody's going to give uh, drilling rights, for example, in return to Turkey. Just briefly, uh, Michael Clark, how do you think British troops uh, based in Cyprus will be watching all of this? Oh, they'll be watching it uh, very carefully, only because their position with that in Aquitiri, Decalia and so on may become very uncomfortable because if there is a blow up in the Eastern Mediterranean, then um, they'll be expected to enter into some peacekeeping operations there. Um, and remember that the Russians are deeply involved in Cyprus now in ways they weren't before the economic crisis of 2008. So British forces in Cyprus may not be so comfortably placed as they have been for 40 odd years if something really does blow up in the Eastern Mediterranean. Yes, we'll be talking about UN peacekeeping in a moment. Stay with us, gentlemen. There are currently 14 UN peacekeeping operations across the world. Half of them are in Africa. Well, next Wednesday, the UN holds its International Day of Peacekeepers. However, it's being marked today in London with a conference at the Royal United Services Institute. Well, let's talk to Ewan Lawson, Senior Research Fellow at RUSI. Good to speak to you today, Ewan. Um, this conference will address the challenges and opportunities that face contemporary UN peacekeeping. Over the 17 years that you've had these annual conferences, how have things changed? Probably the main way in which um, uh, UN peacekeeping missions have changed is, is in the degree of complexity. Um, you know, once upon a time, peacekeeping missions, whilst challenging, were, were essentially about interposition between two forces as part of a peace agreement. Now we see in operations like in Mali and South Sudan and Central African Republic, you know, a whole range of, of actors, uh, many of whom are uh, potentially hostile uh, to the UN. So it's really the complexity and, 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 the, and, and the growth in that complexity, which I think is the main change. Yes, and in that complex environment, who decides the rules of engagement when it comes to peacekeeping? Well, those are generally set by the UN Security Council in the mandate. And again, one of the changes we've seen, I think, in the last 17 years is missions moving from, in essence, a self-protection mandate and, and that they could protect themselves uh, only uh, through to now having more robust mandates which allow them to protect civilians in particular. And, of course, you know, some of this is a legacy of, of perceived failures in, in uh, Yugoslavia and, and in Rwanda. Yes, and there are 14 deployments currently. Is it too much for the UN to cover? Um, I'm not sure it's the number that's the issue. Um, I think that it's the scale of some of the bigger missions. So, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier on, you know, Mali, South Sudan, Central African Republic, um, the Democratic Republic of Congo, all of these are large missions. Um, and, you know, it's a challenge to the UN, you know, to manage those missions effectively. Yeah, and, and in that light, do you think we should be going back to that idea of Butrus Butrus Ghali when he was Secretary General of the UN, that UN should have a standing army, a constant supply of peacekeepers? Well, I'm, I'm not sure a, a standing army as such works. Um, I think you know, there has in the past been an experiment with taking one troop contributing country and effectively giving it an allowance to keep a, um, a, a small formation, I think it was a brigade, uh, available um, at high readiness. I think the problem is that um, the way the system currently works it's about um, troop contributing countries making pledges um, and those pledges tend to be what the troop contributing countries think they want to give and they may not necessarily match with what the requirements are for the mission. Yeah, can you give us any specific examples of that? Well, for example, you know, if you look at a place like uh, like South Sudan, which I know, um, the big issue there is, you know, there is no, um, uh, there's no infrastructure, so there's no roads. 
So you need you know, a lot of helicopters because of the importance of the Nile. You really need a riverine capability. And you know, those things are often not easily available, whereas large formations of infantry sometimes are. So how do UN peacekeepers on the ground actually cope when they've not got that kind of backup? Well, I mean, and it varies from troop contingent to troop contingent. Um, you know, I, I saw two contingents in my time in South Sudan, one of which um, was creative um, and you know, used local resources, was prepared to put its people out on the ground um, you know, with a minimum amount of food and water on the basis that you know, they were there for a purpose. Other troop contingents, for understandable reasons, are much more protective of their people and won't allow them to, um, you know, to operate without that mobility. They then run the risk, of course, of just becoming very fixed in their bases with only a very limited influence you know, in the immediate vicinity of those bases. Ewan Lawson, thank you. Well, Professor Michael Clark has been listening to that. Professor Clark, Michael Clark, you, as former Director General at RUSI, will have been to many of these, if not all of these, conferences in the past and a special ceremonial uh, feature at the end. Yes, they, there are officers there from all over the world at the conference and they normally form up outside Rusi, which is halfway down Whitehall, and they march to the Cenotaph and lay some reeds. And it's very interesting because they are from all over the world, so they're all in different uniforms, different shoulder flashes, lots of medals. They're all senior officers, so they don't march all that well. They're, they're all a bit of a shambles, to be honest. But they put their blueberries on very proudly. And so all with their blueberries, they march to the Cenotaph. And there they honour the more than a million men and women who've served as UN peacekeepers since 1948, and almost 4,000 of whom have been killed wearing the blueberry. Mm. And it's a very simple affecting little ceremony and it, it means a great deal and I really when I saw it every year I honoured the blueberry and um, the, these people believe me they're proud to take off their national headdress and put on the blueberry for that moment sounds quite moving it, it is it mm. is and it really makes you think about it you know if there are if there are ways in which the military is all over the world I mean you're talking about all nationalities all religions all ethnicities they put the blueberry on and they represent a united sense of the uh, commitment to peace. It's very good. Now, the UK's first senior enlisted advisor to the Chiefs of Staff Committee has been talking about what his job means. WO1 Glenn Horton was formerly the first British Army Sergeant Major, the most senior non-commissioned officer. Here he is speaking about the earlier part of his career. As a young 18-year-old, I didn't care about much as I prepared to embark on my new life adventure. But I did care about my platoon, my company and my regiment. And above all, the one thing I really cared for was my section, a section that I could still name today and one that I will never forget. My section, I did have hair once, <laughs> only a little bit. My section were my family. I was the youngest, the cheekiest and the least experienced. From the outset, there was a sense of loyalty amongst us. We stuck together in everything we did and we had a mutual respect for one another despite the fact I was still the junior bod and still got all the jobs. We dug together, we ate together, we laughed at each other, we laughed with each other, and we loved our simple existence. We knew at some stage that potentially we could be in lethal combat with enemy forces, and we knew there was a very high chance that some of us, if not all, may never come back. And if you want to watch the whole thing, it's on Rusi's YouTube channel. Christopher Lee, you watched it. What's so special about it? And what was it, what was it about? What was it for? I think uh, first and foremost, it's the authority which is delivered by uh, uh, the uh, Army Sergeant Major uh, Horton. Um, 
I think, is that he brings the army and he brings the services in some ways back down to its basic, uh, basic idea, and that is the smallest part, the section. Uh, those are the guys he's never forgotten. Uh, those are the guys that many of them didn't come back, and then the section was replaced, etc., etc. I think if you put that on the screens today, you would solve the, uh, you would solve the problem of, re of recruiting because it represents all those things that sometimes people don't talk about uh, nowadays, and this idea of sort of linking up with other people by being part of an organisation like that. Mm, Christopher, it sounds like your, your dog wants to join in there. He's already uh, in. Yeah, Professor Michael Clark, um, this was the inaugural JC Lord lecture. Um, why has there been a lecture set up in the name of JC Lord, and what's it for? Oh. Oh, it, it's, it's simply to uh, express some of those, as Christopher said, those realities of the armed services. I mean, what it really is. And also, I mean, so many lectures are given by, notably by senior officers and analysts and so on, that we need to keep hearing from people who are at the sharp end. And Glenn Horton, I heard him give that same talk at the Land Bruce's Land Warfare Conference last year. And again, it's very affecting because he says there that by the time you've been trained, by the time you've been socialized into your group, then there is no way. He said he was so scared as the as the vehicle which is in the 1991 Iraq war. He said as his vehicle got closer to the front line and they could hear all of the, the noise of battle, he said by the time the doors flung open, they didn't know if they're all going to get shot as soon as the doors open. But he said as soon as the, the, the by the time the doors were flung open, there was no way that he was going to do anything other than rush straight out of them and lead his section out. He said, even if I'd been killed within a second, it didn't matter. There was no way he was going to do anything else. And to, and to, to be able to encapsulate that, which he does so well, to bottle it, mm. that's the point of these sorts of lectures. Bottle and, it so that you can give it to others. And there we must leave it for today. If you have an opinion on anything in the programme, tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Thanks for listening. Join us again at the same time next week. I'm Kate Chugabat, Jibbo, even. Bye-bye for now.